For some time now, I've been in this expository series uh, in the book of 1 John and, and, uh, with the subtitle of That You May Know, because John is certainly zealous and uh, very much wants us to know a number of things with certainty, not just with a kind of a wishful, hopeful thinking, but rather with great certainty and assurance. And today we're going to look at our, the next part of our series, beginning at 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 is our scripture reading. And you're invited to look on the screen or on your own Bible or your device or in a pew Bible as you may desire. We'll be reading John, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Again, hear the word of the living God. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of the Lord our God stands forever. Let us pray. Once again, Father, we come in absolute need of the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit. Because without that, Lord, without your word, and without the Spirit's help to understand it, we are blind and we are deaf. We will not profit from the word unless you come and do your sanctifying work. But Jesus, you came and you sent the Holy Spirit so that we would not be alone, not left to our own resources, Father, help us today understand to whom we belong because of the work you continue to do in us by your Holy Spirit, through your word and the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The last time in this exposition, I was gone last week on vacation and I understand uh, Chaplain Wright did an outstanding job in, in my absence, uh, but Last time around, uh, we were looking at basically the verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 28 through 3-3. But particular, 
in the verses 229 through 32, the Apostle John was reminding us that Christians have been born of God and therefore they can rightly claim the title, as it were, the children of God. That was the title of the message last time. And today he goes on to inform us from there that the evidence of our being part of God's family, his forever family, if you will, is clearly seen in his children and what they do and the way they live and their desire to follow in the footsteps of their spiritual father. John already has called upon his little children. That was his uh, term of endearment that he often referred to his flock or the church that he was pastoring or attending to. He's already called them to live a life of righteousness in the 29th verse of the previous chapter in light of Christ's second coming. And that was the interesting thing. He used the second coming of Christ at the end of the age. He used that to motivate them to live godly and righteous lives. Now, he gives the same call to godly and righteous living in light of Jesus' first coming. He gives that now as the motivation for living. Look at verses uh, 3, excuse me, quickly, verses 5 and 8 again in our passage. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And then in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. These two comings serve as bookends. The two comings of Christ, his first coming and his second coming. But it's in reverse order. It's the second one first and then now today the first coming. They serve as bookends to motivate Christians then and now to right and righteous living. Remember what he said in verse 3. Look back at the last verse from the last time. 3, 3. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's basically a way of saying we want to follow in his steps. He was righteous. He was pure. We want to seek to follow him as well in that way. So according to our text today, I just read, and we're reading the various sections in our parts, why did Jesus come? According to this text, he came for three reasons. First of all, he came to deliver us from sin. Secondly, he came to destroy the devil's works. And thirdly, he came to differentiate the children of God from those who are not. So he came to deliver us from sin, to destroy the devil's works, and to differentiate the real members of his family who are the children of God. Let's look at that first point. Deliver us. He came to deliver us from our sin. That's in verses 4 through 6. Listen again. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know what 
you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, despite what modern man and woman would like to think or say to the contrary, sin is the greatest problem that you and I and that anyone in the world has, whether they know it or not. It's humanity's biggest problem. And it accounts and influences so many of the other things that are merely systemic, that are merely the results of what is wrong at the root in our hearts that the Bible calls sin. In this case, sin, the greatest enemy, its solution can only be found in God. God is the only one that can provide the solution to solve the sin problem. And that's exactly what our text is telling us that he did in two ways. Addressing the sin and also addressing the influence and the work of one that the Bible calls the Satan or the Satan, if you want to correctly pronounce it in terms of, of, of that part of the world. The problem is stated first followed by a solution. The problem is our sinfulness, and it results in, the text says, lawlessness, which is a wanton disregard for what God says is right and righteous. To be sinful or lawless is to say, I don't care, God, what you want, what you say about this, that, or the other. I will do it my way. That's the bottom line. Our sinfulness is the problem, and it results in a lawless rejection of God's rightful rule in our lives. It is more than just an act here and there. It is a settled disposition of the heart and mind that desires our will over his. That's what sin is, and that is a serious problem. In other words, my friend, you and I are natural-born sinners. You've heard of natural-born killers? We're natural-born sinners. Comes to us naturally. We came out of the oven understanding it well. We know how to do it instinctively. Unless something happens, the miracle of the new birth, by the grace of God, what we call being born again. And that's what John is saying. Those who are born of God have now also another power in play. Something else has come. With Jesus coming, he has brought the Holy Spirit and brought the new birth that changes how, who we are, and how we live. Because our predicament is so great, a great response is required. And that is why Jesus came in the incarnation, first of all, to take away our sin. That's in verse 5. Also, John, in the gospel, John, 1 John 1, 29, what did he say when Jesus was coming to him? Behold, 
The Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. There's your problem solver. There's the one only that can rectify what is wrong in this cursed and broken world full of sin and lawlessness. And in order to do that, this text says he was without sin. By the way, that's attested in many other passages. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 4, 15, talking about a spotless, pure lamb. He had to be a perfect sacrifice without sin in order to atone for sin. 1 Peter 2.22 also attests to the same truth. Now look at verse 6 again once more. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That's a little troubling, isn't it? Do you still sin? Do you keep on sinning? What exactly does that mean? Is this talking about being able to obtain some kind of sinless perfection that we can get good enough at this thing called Christianity that we can one day not have any sin so we can say, yep, that's me, I don't sin? Not really. No, of course not. (laughs) You know that's a lie. And if you don't believe it's a lie, you've been fed a lie. If you believe that you can ever get to such a place. So what exactly is this saying? The, no, this is not some kind of sinless perfection that can be achieved. Emphatically not. Why? Because 1 John 1, 8 said what? Remember what it said? 1 John 1, 8. Listen, this is John himself, same guy writing this. He didn't get schizophrenic on us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, you're a liar. If you say you're there, that you're not. So, so how do we reconcile this? What is it really saying? It is saying this, that if our Savior is sinless and pure, then, my friends, it is inconceivable. It is unthinkable that you and I should not want to be like him. If that's who he is, if that's what he's done, if he has loved us so, Paul said it, how can we not want to live for him who for our sakes died and rose again? How would do we not want to pattern and walk after him? Desire the things that he, if he's done so much for us. You see, think of it this way. When sin gets the upper hand, and it does sometimes on you and on me. When it does, do we delight in it? Or do we despise it? Do we cry out like David in Psalm 51? Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I am am contaminated. Oh God, have mercy on me. Do we despise it? Do we 
despise our own behavior, as D.C. Talk said. There's the second thing here. The coming of Jesus brings. He came to destroy the devil's works. Look at verses 3, 7 through 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. If sin is a personal enemy, number one, Satan is the public enemy, number one. The flesh is our internal foe. Satan is our external foe. We are now engaged in a great war on two fronts, sin and Satan. That's what this text is telling us. We're in, a, we're in a war, and we're fighting it on two fronts. We have to fight sin, and we also have to fight the deceptive influence of the Satan, of the deceiver, of Satan, of the devil. But we need to be encouraged because the lion-like lamb that is depicted in Revelation 5 has come and defeated Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says something very similar to what this text is saying in verse 8. Listen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook the same things. That's why Jesus came. That's the incarnation. That's why he came to earth. And here's the re what he intended to do, the purpose of his coming. That through death, his own, as an atoning sacrifice. He might destroy the one who has the power of death. Who is that? Satan. The devil. The deceiver. And he says it specifically. That is the devil. And deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So that we can say we are no longer slaves. We are children of God. I am a child of God. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what he came to deliver. You see, he came, our Jesus came on a search and destroy mission that targeted like a laser-guided missile, the domain of darkness. And the result was a destructive knockout blow to the devil of which the cross and the empty tomb are an eternal monument to his victory, and to ours. That's the cool thing. It's not just his victory, it's to ours. One day we will be released because he's coming again. We're going to struggle with our sin, trying to live like him until then, but one day he's coming. But what specifically? A little bit more. Let's drill down. And what does it mean in the second part of that verse? Destroy the works of the devil. What, what is that talking about? What is John getting at there? He is telling us again something that's objectively and subjectively 
objectively true and subjectively becoming truer. By Jesus' perfect life and atoning death, he took away sin's penalty and by the gift of the new birth causing us to be born again, sin's power has been neutralized. Not eradicated, but neutralized and Satan has been dealt a mortal blow. That all happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. Satan is done. He just doesn't want to admit it. He's still kicking. He's still fighting. He's still deceiving. He's still lying. A wounded animal that is dying of a mortal wound still can be very, very dangerous. Make no mistake about that. He's still a dangerous deceiver. And see, that's really... What form? What, is, what, is it? what are the works of the devil? They are lies. Lies upon lies and a pack of lies. And he's been telling them down through the ages. Has God really said? Throw yourself down. The stones depicted it in sympathy for, for the devil. How well he's been ever, he's in all these places and he's lying and he's whispering, he's deceiving. What does that look like? Let me give you one, one beautiful picture, I think, of what this looks like on ground level in the, in the battle against a spiritual force we cannot see, but we can feel him. We can hear him whispering to us. as the father of lies. I think a song, again, by one of my, uh, perhaps one of my favorite contemporary covert Christian groups. They're not openly so. They don't go around advertising it and putting crosses on things. Uh, but they, they really write some powerful Christian lyrics. And um, the group is, you've heard me refer to them as the Oh Hellos several times. This is from a song they wrote called Dear Wormwood. Now, any of you C.S. Lewis fans out there, you should be familiar with that. You should know what that's talking about. It's talking about Wormwood was a demon, a senior demon. And uh, he was actually, uh, Wormwood was the, uh, which one I forget, screw, screw tape, and then uh, 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 Wormwood. And uh, this is, listen to these, li these lines. This is, this is before this is the, the whole story is of a, a person check, looking back over their life and realized, I've been hearing these lies all my life. And then something happens. Finally, they begin to realize what's been going on. They come alive spiritually to what lies they have been fed and believed. But this is how one of the refrains says, there before the flesh. This is talking about when he didn't know what was going on. I saw a brighter world beyond myself. And in my hour of weakness, you were there. Talking about the enemy. To see my courage fail. The years have been long. And you have taught me well to sit and wait. Planning without acting. Steadily becoming what I hate. Have you ever felt that? 
steadily becoming what I hate. I don't want to be this way. But once again, I've been deceived. I bought the lie. But then as the song goes on, the awakening comes. And now there's a change in his tone. And he says, you were always there in my mind. But now I understand you and I will not be a part of your designs. I know who I am now. I, I didn't know who you were, but I know who I am now. And all that you've made of me, I know who you are now. I name you my enemy. I got you. You're not fooling me anymore. I know who you are. I know who I am now. I know what I want to be. You see, that's the battle. That's how it goes. But recognize the enemy. Recognize his voice. Name him. And if you're a child of God, you want to be different. You want to follow in Christ's steps. You want to be more like your father. That's the spirit. That's the language of the heart of a true Christian. See, the last part of this is the differentiation. Believers are born of God and his spirit remains in them as a confirmation of his fatherhood. Because the Spirit remains in believers, they don't continue in sin. Look at verses 9 through 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, sin correctly understood is incompatible. That's the point John is making. It's incompatible with membership in the family of God. We can't be with him if we're against him. How can we be comfortable in his family if we are in a disposition that is opposed to him and does not want his rule and his reign and his love reigning over us? John's just saying that doesn't make any sense. That's crazy. It's incongruent. But believers are not free from sins with an S. God's done something to start working on their sin and changing their nature, and he's given them the Holy Spirit, and he's given them a new heart, but they still are not free from sins. But here's the difference. Sins understood not as a disposition of rebellion against God, but of moments of failure. Big difference. You can sin and be in a disposition of defiance and willful rejection. You can also sin and hate the failure, knowing that was not the truest you. This is such encouraging words. Listen to what Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary in 1 John 1 through 3 said, The reason John writes this passage, verses 2, 28 through 3, 10, 
is not to scare Christians or to assure them. Rather, he writes to show the incongruity of the attitude of indifference towards sin. Well, it doesn't really matter sin, sin. Well, you know, I know Jesus paid it all. No. If you look at it like that, you may not be born again. You may not be a child of God. If you are a child of God, you've disappointed your father when you sin. And you are sorry. You repent. You come running back into the father's arms. He says, do you think it is acceptable for a Christian to sin? Don't. Think again. It's not. For us, sin is the exception, not the rule. Once it was the rule. Now it's more the exception. As Christians, we look like Christ. We are not sinless saviors of ourselves, but we are sin-hating, sin-fighting images of our immaculate Emmanuel. While we still have sinful patterns or habits, some of which will plague us for life and others of which we already have or will have conquered or controlled, our new habits of holiness are the prevailing, the prevailing lifestyle. Not that we won't mess up, not that we won't fail, but real and radical change has happened inwardly and outwardly. We have made a decisive break with sin. We know the enemy. We call it what it is. We do not long, even when we fall into it, we run back to the Father in repentance and faith. Yes, Christians will always still keep sin, sinning. But we don't love sin. We want to love him and follow him. In verse 10, we find this simple fundamental test to distinguish the children of God and the children of the devil. Do what is right or righteous and love your brother. That's what John is saying. If, if God has done all this for you, love him. Follow him. Do what dad does, what dad would approve of as his little child and when you stumble and when you fall and when you fail and you will he's there run to him don't run to your guilt don't run to your shame run to Jesus again and be cleansed be reminded of his love that has covered your sin and then love one another you're free you've been set free you're a child of God love one another what you see the Father do. That's what you want to do if you're a child of God. I guess the real question is this. Who's your daddy? Let's pray. Father, thank you that in Christ we can have you as our father, our daddy. Not the father of lies. We've served his purposes, fallen for his plays and his games and schemes all too often. And our own sinful hearts have been too duplicitous in the rebellion, in the lawlessness. But thank you, Jesus, that you came to take care of both, to destroy the works, to expose the lies, to take away sin, 
so that even when we sin, we are reminded the remedy is in Jesus. And our sin has been cast into the sea of your forgotten memory. No longer to oppress and to haunt, for Christ has lived and died for us. Father, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, bring everyone to that place in which they have put their trust and their faith in you, Jesus, and become part of your forever family. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.